Okay, I think I'm ready. Hope you all are ready. The only thing I can think of, I don't think we have any specific announcements of anything coming up other than the night to honor Israel on the 27th of November. And then also we need to uh, continue to be in prayer for uh, uh, Jim Myers for their ministry over there in Kiev. And also uh, continue to keep in prayer Kindle Weeks. Sandy, I didn't tell you, I heard, when I talked to Jim last week, he had talked to Kendall earlier in the week via Skype, and Kendall was home from the hospital. His, it looked like his face was, he'd had a stroke. Um, that's what happens with Guillain-Barre. It just, you, you're, it's like you're, you're paralyzed, but you can get over all of that, as obviously uh, Myers did. So um, we can just be in prayer for, for both of them, as well as I think a prayer request went out today about... Uh, Jim Bernie's situation. Well, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the way in which you supervise our lives and the way in which you provide for us and take care of all of our needs. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity that uh, so many people have to find out about what Jim Myers is doing and for the way many people have already responded with their desire to help support that ministry. And Father, we pray that you will supply the needs for all that they need to do to accomplish the mission that you've given them. Father, we are also thankful that uh, Kendall Weeks is home. We pray that he'll have uh, good doctors, good therapists, and that he will uh, recover quickly from this attack of uh, Guillain-Barre. And, uh, Father, we're uh, also uh, pr- in prayer for Jim Burney. Pray that he would, uh, a kidney would be made available, that you'll just uh, give wisdom to his therapist and all the things that are going on uh, with him physically and strengthen him in terms of his own uh, faith and mental attitude. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things and that we might uh, once again just be Uh, encouraged that we might uh, gain confidence and assurance from your word because we know that it gives us a framework for thinking about every every issue in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Sort of flew past this last week as I was wrapping up, and I thought, well, I'm going to go back and give it a little more attention. And I thought that The way I'm going to approach this is tonight I want to look at, just summarize what happens right here at the end of chapter 4 and go into chapter 5 down to verse 16. This is basic narrative, basic uh, relation of series of events that are all related all the way down through verse 16. There's something that ties them all together that most people uh, don't necessarily understand. Put much or spend much time on or bring out as we look at this particular passage. So I'm going to start a little bit of a mini series as I do sub series topical series within our study of Acts because in this section we face a passage that is uh, perhaps one of the 
two or three passages in Scripture that most people will go to to try to uh, argue, to try to show that the Bible really does uh, support uh, some view of socialism or communal living. And what we actually find is, is just the opposite. Back in the 1970s when I was, at, uh, when I was in seminary, a book came out that uh, about 300,000 copies, I think, were initially in print during the, at the end of the 70s, which was in many ways in the Carter administration not dissimilar from uh, the era in which we currently live. And uh, during that time, uh, a theologian by the name of Ron Sider, who I think was fairly young at the time, which is always a problem, when I was 35, I heard a seminary professor of mine say, nobody ought to write a book on the Bible, on the Christian life, until they're over 40 or 45 because they haven't lived long enough. Well, when you're between 25 and 45, you think you've lived long enough. But after you get older than 45, you realize you really didn't live long enough, and that was true for Ron Sider. And he wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And it was basically a an attempt to, to defend pure socialism from the Scripture. The book went through three or four editions by the time the last edition came out. And uh, I think it was the third edition came out in 1997. And by then, you wouldn't recognize the book from its original. Uh, although he didn't come out on the first page and say, gee, I've completely refuted or rejected everything I said in the first edition, he qualified and changed a lot so much that he there was very little resemblance between uh, what he understood by the last edition, from which didn't sell a whole lot, uh, and what he had initially published. And in but he did say in his in the last edition that he really did he wasn't an economist and he really hadn't understood a lot of basic principles on economics when he wrote the first edition. But Ron Sider, is, and that particular book, was one of the major uh, books that tried to argue, uh, tried to teach a view of, of socialism based on the Bible. Another one is a man by the name of Jim Wallace, and Jim Wallace is uh, uh, probably his late 50s, early 60s today, has a ministry. You can Google him, find a lot of his stuff. He's a strong social activist, strong, uh, extremely liberal, not only in terms of his theology, but in terms of his his views on economics and politics. And uh, <clears throat> is, is, has a, but he is, I, I, if you put all evangelicals on a spectrum, the last guy on the left, just before the cliff that you fall off, is is Jim Wallace. And he's hanging on by a thread. Just because of his views on the Bible, his views on many different things theologically, just it, it, sometimes you have to have an extremely broad, loose, generous definition of evangelical uh, to include him uh, within that that uh, those parameters. Uh, what I want to look at in the next few weeks is not only what this passage says and doesn't say and how it is wrongly used, but to go to other passages that um, speak about about money in the Bible. We have to re- recognize, as some, many people will say, well, you know, the Bible's not a 
you'll hear this. The Bible's not a science textbook, so what's this about creationism and evolution? Well, the Bible may not be a science textbook, but it is accurate in all that it says about God's creation, and therefore the observations that God gives us about his creation should have equal or greater weight than human finite observations and interpretations that often have to change because one of the major weaknesses with any empirical uh, philosophy of knowledge is that, that you can always discover some fact tomorrow that causes you to have to completely change and overhaul the theory you held based on the previous 99 facts that you thought you understood. And so any form of empirical, empirically-based knowledge is always subject to, to radical change because man is finite, his knowledge is finite, the framework that he uses to interpret data is also subject to uh, being finite. So we recognize, just as the Bible isn't a science textbook, neither is it an economics textbook, but it does say a lot about economics. Economics is the study of value, uh, the study of labor. It's not just something related to, uh, to money. But the Bible says almost as much about money as it does about any other topic. It says a lot about money as a, a tool uh, for the acquisition of property, and that's really the bottom line. Money just at, is just a, a way in which we uh, can conveniently exchange for goods and services, and ultimately value is always or should be rooted in uh, something that has real value, which is, is property. Now, when we think about something having great value, and money always relates to something having value, we, when we value something, it reveals something about our own value system. If we say such and such has value, we say it's important, it's a priority, and, and it says something, and it represents something about our total value system. And anytime we have a value system, we're looking at certain, we're making judgments about some things being more important, some things being better than other things. And that always brings in uh, some sort of ethical standard, some way of making these kinds of decisions related to what has value and what doesn't. So any kind of value system also brings into play ethics, priorities, and and values. And since the Bible says a lot about values and ethics and priorities, it says something about money. Now, the Bible also says a lot about labor. It says a lot about work. And this is especially true within the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law, which is uh, what God, the law code that God gave to the Jewish people that was to be the constitution, the law code, for the nation, reflects his view of law, authority, and, of course, um, labor. And there's a lot to say in the Mosaic Law related to the value of labor and the value of the laborer, as well as the financial obligations that are incumbent upon those who have wealth, who own property, and who own um, own slaves in some in some cases because you did have slavery 
during that time in Israel. It was not a chattel slavery like we had in the South, in the United States. It was more of what we refer to as an indentured servitude because since individual human beings were all created in the image and likeness of God, there was always a way for the, for the slave to buy his way out or to be redeemed completely at the end of, uh, of six years during the sabbatical year. So the Mosaic Law itself also reveals in a more specific way a divine perspective on labor, the value of labor, and financial obligations. At the core of the Mosaic Law's theology of money is this idea of property and property rights and ownership rights. When you look at the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is thou shalt not steal. Now, that would be meaningless unless people have the right to own property and to keep it for their own personal use and to determine how to use that property uh, however they wish and that other people do not have the right to uh, take that property. So that implies a theology of property rights, which you have running throughout the Mosaic Law. There's also uh, provisions within the Mosaic Law related to inheritance rights. There's a lot that's said in the Mosaic Law related to inheritance rights and the, preserv- the accumulation of wealth and property and how that is passed on from one generation to the next. In fact, uh, last night I was at um, uh, an event at the um, um, United Orthodox Synagogue uh, here in Houston, and up on the front part, there, there are two huge um, paintings, and one of them has the word Zakur for memory, and the other has Lador Vador, which means from generation to generation, and that, that property was to be passed on from generation to generation. And there, there, while there were taxes in the Mosaic Law called tithes, and that uh, Jesus also in the New Testament recognizes the right of government to tax, the Bible never authorizes property tax because the per- what property tax does is it acts as if the ultimate owner of the land is the government. And biblically speaking, the ultimate owner of the land and property is God. And so property uh, property taxes are incursion upon, an intrusion upon divine prerogatives uh, and the state arguing that they're the owner of the land over against the people. Property taxes also uh, are an assault on the accumulation, preservation, and the passing on of wealth from generation to generation. And a study of the inheritance laws in the Mosaic Law revealed that what God intended as a nation prospered was for wealth to not only be accumulated, but for it to grow within a family from generation to generation. And so there is not an antagonism in the scripture towards the accumulation of great amounts of wealth. What you do find is a criticism on the mentality that goes after wealth as a source of meaning, value, and happiness, and that is described usually as as covetousness. When you get into the New Testament, the New Testament does not contradict the monetary principles and the economic principles of the Mosaic Law at all. 
but it transforms those those laws in the Old Testament, which were designed for a theocratic nation, to a broader universal context because now there's no longer going to be a theocratic nation in Israel, but God is going to be working through a universal group of people, the church. And so there is a a transfer of the nature of these laws related to money because of this new enter uh, this new entity of the church, which is now transnational. But in both cases, both the Old Testament and New Testament, the one thing that stands out is that, that money and the use of money and wealth is a personal responsibility, not a government responsibility. And I'll, we'll go through a lot of passages where we're going to we're going to see that. And one of the problems that uh, you you run into, and a lot of the verses that are used. In fact, I googled uh, uh, Christianity and socialism today, and I found a website that listed all these Bible verses that supported uh, a social socialism from the Bible. But the one thing that you don't have in any of those verses is that it's never the government's responsibility. Never was the government, when you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, never was the government uh, accused of, of not taking care of the poor unless what was happening was the, the tithes that were mandated by the Mosaic Law that were taken every three years for the care of the widows and orphans, if that was being abused, then the government was uh, accused and condemned for misusing those those funds. But the, as you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's always, though the government has a right to tax, the government is never the, the, the entity that's being judged on the misuse of money. It's always the individual. The emphasis in the Bible from the, from the creation of man in Genesis chapter 2 on is always on individual responsibility. Now, that doesn't mean that, or that doesn't, um, that doesn't um, contradict our use of compassion and care for those who are uh, who have misfortunes, those who don't have money, those who are on the edges of financial collapse. But that's another principle. Those response those responsibilities for care and concern and compassion are to be personal. And what we see in the scripture and we see in history is when the government take governments take over resp- the, those responsibilities to take care of people is that we, we, because we're just basically irresponsible. Oh, I'd r- much ra- rather think that the government's going to take care of everybody than to have to be involved personally and compassionately to be involved in doing what I can do to help those who don't have, who are less fortunate. Once the government steps in, then I give up my responsibility, and so uh, pe- people have less care and less concern for those that are elderly and those that are less fortunate. We let the institution of government take care of them in government institutions, basically. And so that is always the trend. The more responsibility we give up individually, the less responsibility we feel for ourselves and for one another. Now, Scripture also has uh, various things to say about uh, money in terms of its use and priority. Money in and of itself is not 
is not evil or sinful. It's the mental attitude and the use. For example, in Matthew chapter 6, in the um, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your focus is on money and the accumulation of wealth, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it shouldn't be the ultimate focus, then it will always crowd God out. And there is always the threat that money and possessions become a God unto themselves, which we'll see in a couple other passages. In 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, it was interesting as I went through this today, and I never looked at these two passages or juxtaposed them together, but they, they do say something if you look at them, pull them together. 1 Timothy, at the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy, says, For the love of money, now this is another verse that is frequently misquoted, that, that for money is a root of, of evil. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Money is, money is, is morally neutral. Money isn't the root of evil. It is the love of money. And the word there is philarguria, uh, which is um, phila, the, that, that first syllable is philos, which has to do with a uh, more of an a, a, a emotional attraction to something. So it is a synonym for greed. Uh, the, for greed is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness, money was more important than God, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The pursuit of money as a source of happiness, stability, and hope is the path of self-induced misery. And then in 2 Timothy 3.2, speaking of the latter days, men will be lovers of themselves. I, you know, I thought this was particularly insightful as it applied to uh, the generations of the 60s and the 70s, back when I first became conscious of this verse in the 60s and the 70s, and it's even more true now. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, and it's, it's the same word there for lovers of money as you have in First uh, Timothy 6.10. So if in the end time, or the latter days, the men will be lovers of money, it's a root of all kinds of evil, so it is that focus on money that then becomes a, a root for the, the spread of evil in society. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. There are a couple other passages that talk about greed and covetousness. In Luke twelve fifteen, Jesus said, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. This is really important for understanding what happens in Acts 5 here, that life isn't our possessions. In fact, Jesus will go on to say that they need to uh, sell their possessions at times, and we'll look at that uh, in, the ne- in the coming weeks. So life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses, And in Colossians 3, Paul says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, or your earthly members, in other words, uh, in terms of your physical life, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
New American Standard translates greed, which is idolatry. Covetousness and greed is idolatry. It becomes religious because you're, you're replacing God as your priority in life to job, money, and that as the source of stability and happiness. So with that, uh, that as an introduction so far, and then... I want to go to one passage in the, a couple of passages to show what the Bible emphasizes in terms of, of the value of labor and profit. Second Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says in the last clause, if anyone will not work, he won't eat. Now, most people want to emphasize, you know, giving to the poor. This is a Christian value. Well, this is a Christian value also. People won't work. They won't eat. They have to, and this is exhibited throughout the Mosaic Law. In the Mosaic Law, there was a provision that was to be made that when the farmer harvested the grain, he was to leave some grain in the field. He wasn't to take all the grain out of the field and then take 10% and go down and take it to the welfare market so the it would then be distributed to the poor while they sat at home as couch potatoes. They still had to work for it. They had to go out in the fields, and they had to glean for the grain that was left in the fields. It wasn't free. There's, you know, God is the originator of the idea that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And they had to work for it. And all the provisions that are given in the Mosaic Law, there is a responsibility of labor to get that which is there, uh, that provision. Then we have another chapter, wonderful chapter, um, in Proverbs 31, which the focus in Proverbs 31 is on a, a virtuous wife, a godly wife. And um, so it begins, Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. So immediately there's a positive value association with a precious jewel to the value of a productive wife. The heart, verse, uh, verse 11, the heart of her husband uh, safely trusts in her so he will have no lack of gain. You know, she is going to take care of things within her realm of responsibility that enable him to be more productive and to make more money and so that they can together be more prosperous. And this is a positive thing. This is how she is a blessing to the home. Verse 12, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. And verse 13, she's involved in labor. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. So she is involved in also bringing profit into the family from her labor. Verse 15, she also rises while it is yet night. She gets up early in the morning. I know some wives who are not morning people, and this is not a positive thing for them. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservant. So it's because of her work and how she prospers that she's able to take care of those and provide jobs for, for those around her. She considers a field and she buys it. 
From her profit, she plants a vineyard. So she's good at real estate investing. She sees a, a field, she buys it, and then she sells it later for a profit. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. So this supports a free market, capitalistic, I'm not going to say it's not pure capitalism. The Bible isn't capitalistic, communistic, or socialistic. It's biblical. It's a biblical view of economics. But it, what the principles of the Bible support are more consistent with a free market-based economic system because that emphasizes personal responsibility as opposed to uh, government responsibility. So she uh, considers a field, buys it. From her profit, she plants a vineyard. This is part of the blessing that she has. So she goes out and she makes a profit. She's a good capitalist. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. That means she goes out and she's in an aerobics class every morning, right? She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She is industrious. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands holds a spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. So she's not just accumulating wealth for herself, but she recognizes that as God has blessed her with financial resources, then she has a responsibility to use that to help those less fortunate. She extends her hand to the poor, yet she reaches out her hand. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not saying the government needs to tax me more so they can use my money to take care of the poor. It's individual responsibility, not government responsibility. Okay, now let's look at what we have in, wait a minute, I've lost a verse, here we go. Acts 4.32, had this slide out of order. Acts 4.32, let's just go back and let, let me take you through a brief summary of this section. And 4.32 down through 36 or 35, we have a general description. This is just one of those little progress reports that Luke ten, gives as we go through Acts, telling us how the church has grown and what they're doing. And so uh, this is also part of the response to the prayer that they had uttered in verses uh, 25, uh, 25, 24 down through 31. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, emphasizing their unity. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. Now, this isn't mandated. It's not required. It wasn't something that the apostles said, this is what you need to do. It was something that came out of their own desire uh, for, the, for the Lord. And so we have this description here then in verse 33 of the uh, power that God gives to the apostles and their authority as indicated through uh, the signs and wonders. And then it talks in the next verse, 34, how they were, they gave up their possessions, uh, their physical possessions, their lands, their houses, and they brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. Three times we have that phrase, very significant. Laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distri they distributed to each as anyone had need. So there's this, this summary here of the fact that the apostles are growing in terms of their authority. There's 
there's confirmatory miracles, signs and wonders, and that the people have a unity where they are so devoted to one another that they willingly sell what they their their real possessions, and then they give that to um, give that to the apostles. Now I want you to notice, nowhere else in the New Testament does this happen. Nowhere else does it. No other church, no other time in all of the history of Christianity does anyone even try to do this. Doesn't happen. This is a unique situation. It's related to the fact that Acts is a transition, uh, transition book. Now, the next thing that happens as one instance of this generosity that they have is that Barnabas, who's called, a son, called Barnabas as a son of encouragement, is a Levite from the di- uh, diaspora. He lives in Cyprus, and he's in Jerusalem, and he had land, he sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, that sets up as the introduction for what happens in chapter 5. In chapters 5, 1 through 11, we have the episode, the first episode in history of two people being slain in the Spirit. If you don't know anything about charismatics, then that joke fell flat, but that's what charismatics do, bop you on the head, and they call that, you fall down flat, and they call that being slain in the Spirit. But they're really slain here, Ananias and then his wife Sapphira. And what happens is Ananias and his wife sell a possession. They don't sell everything. They just sell one piece of property, and from that they gain a a, a good price. But they decide that they want to have the same respect and the same notoriety that they see these other believers having. And remember, nobody mandated that anybody sell anything or give anything. It was something that we gave from the heart. But they, they look at this and they get see these other people being thought of highly, and they want that too, but they also want the money. Now, nobody said they had to give it all to the church. So it's all their decision. They're making a series of wrong decisions. And so Ananias kept back part of the proceeds, and he um, comes in, gives it to the church, but he doesn't take into account that the apostolic authority and that the prophets of the Old Testament have now been replaced by apostles who are the spokespeople from God and who have a hotline to heaven. And so he comes in and he lies about it, and Peter knows the truth. And Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, there are some that think that this means that Ananias was... Uh, uh, possessed by Satan. That's not the sense of the language there. It is not, his heart is not filled with Satan. Satan influences him to lie. And so he lies to the Holy Spirit. Lying to the church, which is the body of Christ formed through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is lying to the Holy Spirit. And he lies to the Holy Spirit and uh, Peter goes on to say in verse 4, while it remained, was it not your own? In other words, you didn't have to do this. And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? So you, you've got, this is all up to you as to what you do with your resources. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Notice, he doesn't say, why did Satan do this in your heart? He said, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. 
Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. God took him. This was an act of divine discipline, sent him to death. But why didn't God do this to everybody else who's lied to the church and said, well, I'm giving 10% and they're giving 5%? It's important to understand this in terms, we have to look at the context. It's always important to understand the context. Now, his wife, Sapphira, isn't with him. And she is about to come, but before she arrives, they wrap him up, carry him out, and they bury him. And about three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes, and she has no idea what has happened. And so Peter now is going to test her. He says, well, tell me what happened, how much you sold the land for. And she said, yes, it was for that amount, uh, agreeing with the amount that her husband had lied about. And so Peter then confronts her in verse 9 and says, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Notice, here you have a phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, that's identified back in verse 3 as the Holy Spirit. There are some people when you have this phrase, Spirit of Christ, Spirit of Jesus, later on in the New Testament, that try to make that refer be a reference to Jesus. But as you have here, a very clear context where it's the Holy Spirit in verse 3, Spirit of the Lord in verse 9, that the Spirit of the Lord refers back to the Holy Spirit. So that's a term for the Holy Spirit. It says, Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. The young men came in, found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband, out by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And then we have... Then we have an an addendum. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Have we seen a verse similar to that any time recently? Yeah, right back up there in verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. And in verse 33 of of chapter 4, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of, uh, of the Lord. And so those two statements bracket this episode. And what are those two statements focusing on? They're focusing on the authority of the apostles now over the church. See, this isn't about what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. It's about God protecting the authority of the new institution, which is the apostles. They're the new leadership. Verse 13 goes on to say, Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So it's all about developing respect for the leadership of the new church. And then verse 14, we get another progress report, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they brought the sick out into the streets, laid them on the beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This whole section has to be understood as a whole, and it's all about establishing the authority of the apostles and establishing this infant organism called the church that isn't going to be torn apart by a lot of people who are self-centered and more concerned about their own uh, well-being, their own wealth, than they are about the context of the church. So let me give you, in the last uh, 15 or 20 minutes that we have, I want to go through 13 general points of observation 
that help us understand what is going on here. Why in the world does God the Holy Spirit tell us this? Why is this important? It's not just a story about uh, these miracles. If you compare this, you read other religious books. The Bhagavad Gita, you read the Book of Quran, you read uh, Book of Mormon, where they bring in miracles. They're, they're, they're random. There's a qualitative difference in how they present things like this. These things don't just happen. It's not just Jesus walking around, these things, boom, 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 and they just happen. Wow, isn't that interesting? That's not that's why it's presented. The miracles are presented to demonstrate in the life of Christ his credentials as the Messiah and to demonstrate here in the, among the apostles that they have the same authority now that's been transferred, delegated to them that had been given to Christ. So first point, we always have to remember that Acts is a transition book. Acts is a transition book. We, things are changing. We're moving from the uh, age of Israel to the church age. There's a transition from the dispensation of the Mosaic law to the dispensation now of grace. There's a transition from a time of incomplete or partial revelation, an incomplete canon, to the uh, time of a complete revelation. Within 60 years of this event, the New Testament canon will be completed. Revelation will come to a close. So there's a lot of things going on here. It's a time, uh, in the Old Testament, it was a time which anticipated the coming of the Messiah, and this is a time which is announcing that he has come and that if uh, the Jew, Jewish people will turn to him, accept him as a Messiah, then the times of refreshing will come. Not immediately because some judgments have to take place, but it will come soon. So there is an expectation, a real, almost tangible expectation that the kingdom is within historical sight. So the first point is Acts is a transition book. Second thing we have to remember is Acts is a, is a narrative. A narrative. By that I mean Acts is telling a story of what happened. It's describing what they did. It is not prescribing what they did. It's telling us that the, this happened to the apostles. It's not saying uh, uh, this happened in the early church where the people sold their property. It's not saying this is what every Christian in every church needs to do. This is, is restricted to a unique time within this transitional period, and there's something else that's going to be going on in this transition. As I pointed out early, earlier, never again in the New Testament period or in church history would anything remotely resembling these events take place. It wasn't supposed to be duplicated. It was historically... Condition. Now, another thing that's important to understand is when they're giving up everything, they're selling their property and giving their money to the church, they're not starting a commune. They're not going out into the desert down by uh, the Dead Sea, down by Qumran, and joining the Essenes in their monastic community. They're not doing that. They're staying in their community. They're continuing to work. Those who sold their homes, their houses, they're finding living at a lower uh, socioeconomic level. Of course, but what happens when you divest yourself of all of your property? You're free. You're free to move. You can go anywhere. There's so many people that are so bound by their debt and by their property ownership that if 
uh, God were to move them to go be a missionary in some other part of the world, it would take them 10 years to pull up root and leave. But not them. Think about that. So third, the most important aspect of this transition is that there's a transition of authority and worship. Up to this point, the focal point of worship has been at the temple. And because of that, it gave additional value to the real estate in Jerusalem because there were three times a year when the population of Jerusalem would triple or quadruple, quintuple as all of these people came to visit to go to, uh, to, go to the feast days. Where do you think they stayed? Well, there were various places that they stayed, but a lot of people who owned homes in Jerusalem would just rent out the, the spare bedrooms to the uh, pilgrims who were coming to town. And that gave them an additional source of income. It also made their property as a source of income, gave it additional value. So let me see. Jesus told them something, didn't he? He had told them in Matthew 24, 2 and Luke 21, 5 to 36 that it wouldn't be long before the judgment would come to Jerusalem and no stone would be left unturned on the temple. Now, if you believe Jesus completely and totally... And Jesus said it's not going to be long before Jerusalem's destroyed and you own real estate in Jerusalem. Do you want to sell now or wait? Better to get high dollar for it now than wait another 20 or 30 years and lose your 401k. So this is, this is also part of the background. So there's a transition of authority and worship related to the temple, but authority in terms of uh, the fact that in the age of Israel, the authority was Moses and the prophets, and in the church age, the authority is Jesus Christ and the disciples. So Jesus is building a new organism, the church, that is built on the foundation of the apostles, and so God is, is showing their authority. And when Peter and Ananias and then Sapphira had this little encounter, and you see the consequences of that, the result was that people were afraid. They understood what was going on. Wait a minute. I will. Had this problem the other day. Okay. Acts 5.11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard this. There was respect for the authority. So this isn't just a story about, you know, people selling their real estate and giving everything to the church so we can all hold hands and sing kumbaya around the campfire and, and not own anything and own everything in common. Okay, so the first first point acts as a transition book. Second point acts as a narrative. Third point, the, I mean, acts as a, a, a historical narrative, so it's not a prescription of what we should do, but just describe what did happen. Third point, the most important aspect of this transition was the transition of authority and worship. Um, fourth point is that in the broader context, Jesus had predicted that Jerusalem would come under judgment and would be destroyed in, be destroyed in their generation. So it's not a good idea to own property in Jerusalem. So that's part of this. Their thinking is that we don't, we shouldn't really need to be tied down to this property. Now, the fifth thing is, as I pointed out before, when we were leading up to this, is they lived. They also lived with an expectation that the kingdom would come soon. There would be this judgment, and then the kingdom would come. 
And when the Messiah returns with the kingdom, all the land God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be theirs, and the property lines for the different tribal allotments would all be redrawn. So why should I have all of my resources bound up in this, you know, this small quarter acre of land in this house when everything's going to change soon? So they, they re- they've developed an eternal perspective in relation to their temporal resources. Now, the sixth point, which I pointed, uh, looked at earlier, is the uh, contextual bracket here, which emphasizes the authority of the apostles. So in the transition nature of the book, we're now focusing on the authority of the apostles and why it's dangerous to go against the authority of the apostles because they are the divine representatives on the earth. So that was the sixth point. The seventh point related to this idea of authority, apostolic authority. I want to expand on that a little bit. In 435, we're told that the people who sold their property brought the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet. And then we're told in verse 36 that Joseph, that is Barnabas, having land, verse 37, land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. They didn't throw it at the apostles' feet. This is a formal orientation where they are submitting to the authority of the apostles and giving all that they have to the apostles for the apostles to do with as they will, recognizing their their authority. And then in Acts chapter 5, verse 2, Ananias brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Three times you have this phrase, laying it at the apostles' feet. And that shows that this was a, uh, they were submitting to the authority of the apostles. And the problem with Ananias was he wasn't submitting uh, to the authority of the apostles. Now, by the eighth point is, and remember this, think in terms of the flow of events in Acts. And Acts, the events in Acts 3 and 4 all happened pretty close to one another. Uh, close to the beginning, with probably within the first three or four months after the day of Pentecost. Uh, these events were probably some six months to a year later. We don't know how much time uh, went by. And then, uh, then there's going to be some more opposition by the end of chapter 5 when Peter and John are going to be arrested again. They're brought in before the Sanhedrin, and they're told, Why are you doing this? We told you not to do this and to quit preaching. And Peter will say, uh, well, we ought to obey God rather than man. So that fulfills chapter 4. Then in chapter 6, something happens. We have all this wonderful love and unity in, at the end of chapter 4, but what happens in chapter 6? Everybody's given all this money to, to the apostles, and they're distributing the wealth, but now there's a problem because it's not that efficient, and they've got a problem. And the the Greek... The Hellenistic Jews that are widows that are there who uh, are, are being neglected in the daily di- distribution of resources. And this led to a uh, further development in the administration, and they appointed uh, seven men. And this is sort of, a, they're not deacons, but they're the prototype for deacons, where you have one group that's the spiritual leaders and the teachers, and then another group that handled the uh, day-to-day administrative type functions. And so this is what happens in chapter 6. It introduces us to Stephen. Uh, Stephen 
um, gets arrested by and brought before the Sanhedrin and preaches a message of uh, confrontation and condemnation in Acts chapter 7. And then they get so mad at him, they violate their own law, and they stone him. And then in chapter 8 we read, verse 1, Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Okay, now what happened in Acts 5? They all sold their property. Now they get kicked out of town. Well, great. Now I don't have to sell my property at fire sale prices. I've already sold it for top dollar. See the sovereign hand of God behind all this. This isn't just we're going to give our money to the church. What it, it, that's part of it, but it, it's broader than that. They, they understand what God is doing in that time in history, and they want to be aligned with God's plan and purpose and not opposing it. And so they, they have sold everything. They've given it to the church. And this is also a tremendous act of trust. So let me see, the eighth point is uh, by chapter 8, a great persecution arises. They're forced to flee, but they've already divest, they've already liquidated their possessions. So they're not tied down and they're not losing anything. Um, ninth point. Their transfer of their personal wealth to the apostles and to the church was a manifestation of their trust in God. The apostles represent God. And by previous to this time, they're trusting in their own personal wealth and possessions to give them stability in difficult times. Now they give it all to the, to the church as a manifestation of their trust in God. They have no trust in the long-term stability of Judea because they understand that Jesus has prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and Judea. They have no trust in the long-term value of their property, so they give up financial independence and replace it with total dependence upon God. Uh, They're not valuing their physical assets over their spiritual assets. They realize that, that they need to be laying up treasures in heaven and not treasures on the earth. So the act of converting their revenue... Their revenue-producing property to the church is a sign that they trusted God as the ultimate source of their their security in life. Now, the tenth point is the consequences of this. In the immediate in the immediate future, we learn that there was no economic need during this period of time, which probably lasted three or four years. There's they have no economic need in Jerusalem, and they're taking care of each other. They have all the financial resources they need to face whatever problems and difficulties they they had. But this situation doesn't last. By the time we get to Acts 8, there's a persecution that arises, and they're scattered. By the time you get to Paul's second missionary journey, by the time you get another 15 years down the road, a famine, which is part of God's judgment and discipline on Judea at this time, a famine, a great famine comes, and what happens? Paul's out establishing these churches among the Gentiles, and now he's collecting money from the Gentile churches to bring it back to Jerusalem, and the way the Jerusalem church survived was on Gentile generosity. 
So we're seeing that transition from the focus on a Jewish church to a more Gentile church, the transition from Israel to the church at this time in, in history. Now, we're told of Paul taking up collections for the Jerusalem church in passages such as Romans 15, 25 to 26, and in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 3. So that during this time, the church in Jerusalem became economically dependent upon the Gentile churches. Now, the 11th point is, as word of this spread, it became a powerful testimony in Jerusalem, back to just within that four-year period of time. As word of what they were doing spread, it became a powerful testimony that something radically different was taking place with this community of Christians, that they were trusting in God in ways that nobody had seen before. And so it's a testimony to the grace of God, his provision for them, and it is also a, a, a witness to the dispensational transition. Twelfth point I want to make is that it's not motivated by any form of utopianism or a reduction in their view of the total depravity of man. They don't have some high view of man that, oh, we're all just going to sell everything and we're going to go off and live in the desert and we're all going to take care of each other and we're going to bring in a utopia. They're not doing that, but that is the root of the idea of socialism, modern socialism from the beginning of the 19th century. It's always associated with we're going to solve all of man's social ills and social problems, and we're going to bring in social justice by confiscating wealth from the wealthy and giving it to the poor. And it doesn't work, and that's the essence of both socialism and communism. And then the last point is that this transfer of property, this giving of the wealth, was not mandated by the apostles. It wasn't a requirement. It wasn't an obligation. It was something that was done on a pure, private, voluntary basis. And what we'll see is in this issue between over what the Bible teaches about how to handle money versus versus modern views of of, uh, communism and socialism, is this emphasis on collectivism versus private responsibility. And that's really the bottom line. Do you believe in individual responsibility or do you believe in collectivism? Which one is it? And what are, what are the implications? So what we <clears throat> have to understand from all of this is simply that God was supporting them individually. They were trusting God they weren't trying to bring in any kind of utopia. They, they were operating within a specific set of historical circumstances. And when that period ended, this kind of thing never happened again. It got them through that period of time. So next time we'll come back and I want to look at uh, some of the other passages that people use to try to come up or find biblical support for socialism, communism. And what we'll see is the the emphasis in the scripture on the value of work and labor. Now, when I say the Bible emphasizes a free will economics, this is not a support for uh, um, crony capitalism or distortions of capitalism that we see, the irresponsible use of money and power, which uh, has accompanied uh, different systems of economics. 
but it shows that the emphasis is on that God gives you the financial resources that you have, and the test is how are you going to use them, not how is the government going to use them. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to say these things this evening and to focus upon your word and to come to an understanding of uh, what you teach about uh, wealth and money and financial resources and individual responsibility. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and see that the Bible presents a completely unified and complementary picture from Genesis to Revelation on the importance of the individual use of of, uh, financial resources and on the basis of grace and kindness and, and goodness and individual responsibility. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.